A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Later on in the show, we'll be catching up with the latest baby bird news from the Kakapo files. But first up, a bit of forensics. A newly developed method of finding DNA and fingerprints could soon be taking some of the guesswork out of crime scene analysis. I'm off to a lab at ESR the Institute of Environmental Science and Research in Auckland, to meet Alicia Haynes, who's pioneering this work. So my research area is in forensic biology, and it's looking at using a dye that can bind to DNA that we can then see visually on a surface. So if you've got a finger mark, you can then spray that area with this dye solution and be able to see what DNA is present and to be able to determine whether that would give you a good result or not. So say you're at a crime scene, you walk into a room and you're wanting to find some DNA. What would normally have been done? So normally you would just sample areas that you would assume to have DNA present. If you are looking at a particular item of interest, say for instance a knife, you could sample the handle without knowing that there's actual DNA there. Whereas with this technique you can spray that item with the dye and be able to see that DNA fluoresce and then be able to sample that. So it's more of a targeted approach to sampling. So where is that DNA coming from? So the DNA is there from transfer from either an individual holding the item or, say, fingerprints that are left there, and you're then able to use that dye to be able to see exactly where it is instead of just assuming where that DNA could potentially be. So instead of swabbing randomly hoping that you'll you'll pick some up, you can be very, very targeted with what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So that's the idea behind the research is that we can then become more certain of, of what we're sampling and be able to say, okay, I see this level of DNA or this amount of DNA and know that that's going to give a good DNA result. So is this a new technique that you've been helping develop? Yes, it is. So where did the idea come from? So the idea started um, during my PhD at Flinders University. And so it was just an idea floating out there from my supervisor. And then I sort of took it, ran with it, and was able to sort of develop this technique to be able to take things further. So what's the compound that you use to make the fingerprints fluoresce? So it's called diamond dye, and it's normally used for a different aspect of DNA analysis where it's used in a gel, whereas this is looking at whether it can be used on a surface. How did you go about testing that for your PhD? There was lots of different aspects that I had to go and test to see whether it had any effects on our downstream processes when we're processing DNA samples. So you had to make sure that it didn't help you see the fingerprint but muck up the DNA. Yeah, absolutely, to make sure that it wouldn't affect the profile that would get in the end. Yeah, I mean, that took 
three and a half years of my life. I tested lots of different dyes to see which one worked the best, uh, which one had the best signal when in the presence of DNA and had the least effects on, on what we would do next with that sample. So how would you use the system when you are actually in, at a crime scene? Yeah, so you can use this um, dye technology with a handheld microscope. So it's quite small for a microscope. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's not as high-powered as the microscopes that we have in the lab, but it's enough that we can then visualise, say, a fingerprint that's on the surface. So that microscope plugs into your computer? Yeah, so it plugs into the computer and then we can see on the screen what we're looking at underneath the microscope and be able to see that fluorescence. So you would then, say for instance, screening a knife again, you could spray that dye, get the microscope and magnify it into the areas that you want to look at and in real time you can see that on the computer screen with the fluorescence. So you can even see the best bit of the fingerprint to test. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Now you've got some slides there. Have you got something you can show me? Yeah, so these slides are from volunteers that I had deposit finger marks onto a glass slide. So this is more of a, to get a reference of the amount of material that different individuals can deposit and to see whether I can see a link between the fluorescence that you see and the profile from the DNA that you get at the end. So are we quite different in the DNA profile we leave behind? Yeah, so some people can shed more DNA than others, so they can deposit more material onto a surface than other people can. Also, there are factors like environmental factors that can contribute, individual factors, so if you're quite sweaty, that can affect the amount of material that you transfer. So yeah, there's lots of aspects of DNA transfer that's involved. What does it look like? Can you show me on the computer what you see? Yeah, so on the screen you can see this picture that kind of looks like a cluster of fluorescent dots and you can kind of see some of the ridge patterning of the finger mark. Okay, now that you tell me it's a fingerprint, yes, I can definitely see the ridges. Yeah, so you can see them coming through there. So those dots that you see on the screen is actually the DNA that's present within that finger mark that is uh, fluorescing with that dye. So you can see exactly where in that finger mark there's DNA present and we can swab that area. So it's very sparkly. The image looks a bit like stars in a night sky. So there's lots of little bits of DNA there. Yeah, so you have lots of DNA coming from the finger mark that could, say for instance, if you touch your face or touch other parts of your body and then um, touch a surface, you'd have more DNA present on that surface area. Now, crime scene investigators go looking for fingerprints anyway, so they use something different to visualise the fingerprints for their purposes? Yeah, so they use reagents that purely look at the finger mark itself, nothing to do with the DNA that's present. Uh, So they could be looking at something that uses the protein within the, the fingerprint, whereas once you've used a fingerprint reagent, you can't necessarily use it for DNA purposes. Do you get a good enough image of the fingerprint that someone could use it for fingerprint identification? That's definitely an aspect that needs to be researched further to see whether we do get enough detail and that would that's actually being continued in a master's project this year uh, in conjunction with Auckland University to see whether we can get that, that ridge patterning enough to be able to use it 
as a fingerprint reagent. How much DNA is there? It's still just tiny trace amounts, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So a finger mark could have anywhere between no DNA that you can detect and up to a nanogram, which is a large amount of DNA that you can get. Depending on whether you're a shedder or not. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) The microscope here, which has finally just popped into action, it's shining a blue light down on the the slide. Yeah, so it's a blue LED and that works in conjunction with the dye because the dye needs a particular coloured light to be able to excite it and be able to view that fluorescence coming from that dye with the DNA. So we've been looking at a very clear fingerprint and has lots of DNA. You've just flicked to another image. Tell me about this one. So this is from another individual at a different time uh, since washing hands and putting the finger marks on the slides and you can tell that you've got a lot less material that's present so instead of a a lovely beautiful night sky you've probably got an Auckland sky with not much stars coming through so you don't have much material that's present and that's just because individuals can deposit different amounts at, at different times. Would there be enough DNA in that fingerprint for you to do anything with? From my research, no. So that would probably only come up with a very poor DNA result, whereas the image that I showed you before, that would come up with a really good DNA result. So even if someone is a good DNA shedder, the amount of DNA that they shed in a fingerprint will vary depending on things like how recently they've washed their hands, whether they've touched their face. There's a whole lot of variables involved. Yeah, there's a lot of variables. Also, the surface type can affect the amount of material that could be transferred as well. So is this all still just at the testing it out in the lab stage? Have you taken it to a crime scene yet? No, not currently. This work is only been used in the lab so far because it's only a relatively new research area that it needs a lot more work to be able to then use it at a crime scene so making sure that the technology works in a real life setting is definitely something that needs to be looked into. Thanks Alicia. That was Alicia Haynes, a senior technician at ESR in Auckland. Koto tato our horihori tene, he hotaka e panaki te putaio, te taio me te kopapa o te ora. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now it's time for another update from the Kākāpō Files podcast. The latest episode was recorded at the beginning of the week, which means that events in Kākāpō land have slightly overtaken us. By the time you hear this, two more eggs should have hatched, so just bear that in mind. First up, let's catch up on the news with the Department of Conservation's Technical Officer, Daryl Eason. Kia Daryl, and welcome back to the Kākāpō Files. Hi, Ellie. Nice to be back. So where have you been for the last couple of weeks? I've been on Anchor Island. It's been two weeks since the last episode of Kākāpō Files, so I'm on the edge of my seat. Where are we up to in terms of chick numbers now? We've got 75 alive, um, 83 have hatched so far, and we've just got the three eggs left to hatch. Last time I did an episode there were 72 chicks, so there's been four hatches since we last went to air. So that'll be two on Fenoho Kuihi's two chicks, and she's looking after both of them now. 
and upper emas two chicks. So we've got upper ema hatched one in her own nest a couple of nights ago, and Mila is looking after her first one that hatched on Tuesday last week. Now that means that we've also had one chick death in the last two weeks, if I get the numbers right. Yes, we have. So Pura 3, so Pura's third chick from the first clutch, died. That was actually with Pura. It had been probably one of the poorest doing chicks in hand-rearing, and it struggled on and off. But it was looking really promising once it went into the nest with Pura. It really picked up really well, but it ended up with liver problems, and we're still investigating what the actual causes of that may have been. Ah, so that was a bit unexpected? That was really unexpected, actually. I think they just probably went to go and weigh it and it had died. Oh, that's very sad. But on a more positive note, you say there are still three eggs left to hatch. Whose are those and when are they due? They're Stella's. So she had the final clutch of three eggs, her second clutch which were all fertile this time, which she had infertile the first time round. So that's great. And there is one external pipping today and should be hatching today, her first egg. And then her last egg will probably hatch around Friday. So her first and her last eggs will hatch in the incubator and one will go to Upper Ema. And Zella will hatch her own egg in the nest, her second egg. And if she's doing really well with that in the first few days, once the third egg's hatched, then we'll move that chick out from the incubator and give to her as well. So by the end of this week, all things going well, and we know that things don't always go well, there might be 78 chicks. That's right, yes, which is quite amazing to think of it like that, isn't it? It's incredible to think of it like that. That's a 50% increase in the population if they all make it through, which we are not counting on that. Yeah, it's always tempting to think how many there are, but we really have to get through to fledging time and even just a little bit beyond that. And we are getting close to fledging for some of the first chicks, like Marama and Aparima's nests, coming out at night already. But they are a bit clumsy in their first few days when they're leaving the nest, and sometimes they get caught up in things. They, they get stuck because they're just not that efficient at walking around very well so anything could happen we do a lot of checks but you never know when that check's going to be and when something goes wrong so those ones that are coming out for a little stumble around at night are they putting themselves back to bed in the nest during the day yes they are at the moment so any time after about especially around about 55 60 days they start coming out of their nest during the night and doing little explores. They're not usually very far away. And then from 70 days onwards, then they give up on their nest and they'll start sleeping elsewhere. And some of those nests, especially on Anchor Island, are on quite steep ground. So it could be quite difficult for some of them to begin with. And we're going to build little fences on the really steep locations to direct them to flatter ground so that the first thing they don't do when they come out of their nest entrance is fall down the hill and not be able to get back up again, which is particularly concerning on anchor because it rains so much there if they get stuck and not be able to get back into their nest, uh, they can get very wet and cold. They've got to learn what to do when it rains, don't they? 
They sure do because it rains an awful lot on Anchor Island. Won't be quite such a problem on Whenua Ho though? No, not as much. Most of them all have easier going terrain around the nest entrance as well and there's nowhere near as much rain on Whenua Ho so it's a, a drier, easier going place for them. I'm imagining a kakapo chick exploring the outside world for the first time will be a bit like a human toddler. Are they constantly putting things in their mouth, testing things, you know, what do they feel like, what do they taste? Yes, absolutely. That sounds great. Now, on a slightly less positive note, hold on to that thought of chicks wandering around in the forest for the first time. That's a lovely one. But you have had a few medical issues since we last spoke. Yeah, one in particular is Esperance. 1B, so the first chick from Esperance's second clutch and it hatched with a bit of a blistered looking lump on the top of its skull and I wondered what that was at the beginning but it's been going really well, it's about three weeks old now and that little lump is not going away and it's growing with the chick, what's staying in proportion the same size so it was sent off to Dunedin and it had a CT scan last week and the skull plates haven't closed over yet, so that's a little bit of a brain protrusion. And so the vets are investigating what can be done. So watch that space at the moment. We're still not sure what's going to happen with that chick. In itself, it's doing fantastic, and there's different thoughts about whether to do it early or wait till it gets a little bit older. But it clearly can't live its life with a bit of its brain sticking out. No, it can't. At least it's had a good start and it will be in good condition to have any work done on it, if that's going to be the case. We'll be following closely, thank you. Now, I think one of Esperance 1B's siblings has also had a bit of a problem with a respiratory infection. Yes, yeah, so that little chick, the second chick of hers, just hasn't done well and we've tried it with a couple of different mothers, Nora and Esperance, and... We thought it was the mother to begin with, it was with Nora, but we swapped chicks with Nora and she's doing really well with the chick she's got now and then it went back to Esperance and it still didn't really pick up even though her first chick was doing really well. And over time we noticed that there's a lot more respiration effort involved. Um, so that came in for hand rearing and treatment and it's doing a lot better now. I think it was probably in with medication and nebulising for about a week and that's back into a nest now and looking really good. Its growth rate is a little bit behind but making good progress so hopefully that'll pick up now. What's been happening in Hawkey's nest? I know she had three chicks there for a while. Yes, she did. Um, she had three chicks and suddenly she's just really noticing a bit more work that needs to be done and um, her chicks are falling behind so we moved one chick out to another nest probably a week ago now and then the remaining two chicks sort of picked up a little bit but then started to drop back a bit. So now she just has the one chick with her. The other two chicks have gone to, to two other nests. So she's going to be caught up probably today and have a health check and blood taken and just make sure she is okay. She's certainly right on the edge of her weight, she's just under a kilogram I think, so it's, it's really hard work for their mums. Yeah, she's been run quite a bit ragged by trying to feed those three big heifer lumps in her nest. Yeah, they're all heavier than her, 
So, yeah, we just have to make sure she's okay and, and hopefully she will be and she'll continue to at least raise Pearl's chick. She's not going to appreciate being caught to have her bloods taken, you know that. No, she won't. Um, <laughs> on hockey, she's very um, protective of her nest, so it's usually easy to catch her and just need to go right up to her nest and she'll come running out and being very protective. So it should be straightforward, but she won't be pleased about it. Now, on the last episode of the Kākāpō Files, Andrew said the males were stopping booming and there was quite a lot of visiting and activity and scraking going on. I understand that Arab has come off a little worse for the wear. Yes, at the end of the booming they always spend a lot more time arguing with each other and yelling and and fighting. And so Arab, Luke and Joe, who all live and boom near each other, have been doing quite a bit of fighting. And Arab has reasonable injuries on his face especially his eye, which he damaged over 20 years ago now in a big fight on Hoturu. And his eyelids are quite badly ripped, so he can't close his eye and cover his eye. And his weight's down a bit, and a few scars, more scars on top of his head. So he got sent up to Auckland Zoo last week, and they're just assessing him now and working out whether try and repair the eyelid or actually take out the eye. Now, it's time for some big news. So we've all been on the edges of our seats wanting to know more information about these chicks. So what are their sexes and in some cases who are their dads? I gather you now know what the sexes of some of them are. Yeah, we know the sex of 49 of the living chicks at the moment. So currently we have 22 females and 27 males. So slightly skewed to the boys, but not too bad. Yeah, not too bad at all, is it? We know the sex of six of the chicks that died also, so two females and four males died. So we've still got another 37, assuming the last three eggs hatched, 37 still to sex. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're a bit more skewed towards the female being the later chicks, when the females, the mums, are a bit lighter condition. Thanks, Daryl. That was Daryl Eason from Doc's Kākāpō Recovery Team. Before we catch up with Andrew Digby, I want to find out how you sex a kākāpō chick. You probably already know this, but you can't sex most birds just by looking at them. They don't have handy external sex organs like we humans do. You need to look at the chromosomes. Genetic work in kākāpō and how to sex them was pioneered by Professor Bruce Robertson at the University of Otago, and this year it's been carried out by a different team of people at AgResearch. Time to give Jeanne Jacobs a call. My name is Jeanne Jacobs and I'm a scientist at AgResearch based in Lincoln, and I am in the genomics and genetics space. We're helping Doc with determining the parentage and the agenda of the newly hatched chicks of the 2018-2019 breeding season. Well, this is always an exciting moment, discovering how many girls there are and how many boys. So I've talked to Daryl about what the findings are so far, and it is only some of the chicks, and so I know you've got more to go. So how do you go about sexing a kākāpō chick? 
Well, the first thing we need to do is to extract DNA from a small sample that we get that Doc sends us. And then in this case, for the gender, we do a PCR, a polymerase chain reaction. So we target a very specific bit of the Kakapo genome. And then depending on the fragment that we get back, we either know it's a male or it's a female. And I must admit, this is an essay that we didn't develop. It was developed by Professor Bruce Robertson at the University of Otago. And we, he very kindly gave us all the information to, uh, to be able to do that. So what I understand is that, particularly for the chicks that have hatched in incubators, they just get a bit of the, the membrane from inside the egg and that's what they give you to work with. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And what are the bits of DNA that you need to look at, the bits of genetic code that actually help you determine that? Because obviously the kākāpō genome is quite big and you're just looking at some little key bits, is that right? That's correct. So it's a, it's a tiny bit that sits on uh, the sex chromosome, so it's that determines whether it's a boy or it's a girl. And in, in birds, it's actually the other way around than in humans. In birds, you have the girls having two different sex chromosomes and the boys having two the same. While in humans, it's exactly the other way around. We have an X and a Y in a male and an X and an X in a female. So we know that uh, from the, the bits that we managed to extract out by this uh, PCR reaction, whether we have a boy or we have a girl, because there's a slightly different fragment that comes out. For those of us who aren't genomics people or genetics people, can you very quickly explain the PCR reaction for me? We are targeting a very specific bit in the genome. We have the sequence for that. And what we then do is we design short bits of DNA that will latch onto the DNA that we have in our tube. And then we do um, a chemical reaction that extends that short bit into a full length bit. And we do that multiple times. We go from one copy of DNA to making two, to making four, to making eight, 16, to a point where we get so much that we can actually visualize it. And we run that out on a gel under, under a current, and we can then see a band appear on a gel, and the size of the band will then tell us whether it's a boy or it's a girl. Thanks, Jean. That was Jean Jacobs from Ag Research. And as well as having more kakapo chicks still to sex, she and the team are also working on determining paternity. I'll let you know as soon as I can who the definite dads are, and especially if any of the artificial insemination has worked. Now let's catch up with Andrew Digby, Doc's Kakapo Recovery Program scientist. I spoke with him about an hour before he got on the plane to go back to Fenuahau. Kia ora and welcome back to the Kakapo Files, Andrew. Kia ora, Alison. The sex ratios of the chicks, we haven't got all of them yet, but how are you feeling about that? Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's close to the sort of 50% that we would like, male to female ratio. How does that compare to other years? You've had years where you've had lots more males, but one year once I think you had a, quite a few females? Yeah, that's right. And in more recent years, we tend to have had a more balanced sex ratio. And um, now that we, we have the supplementary feeding sort of optimised and we put the females on a bit of a diet so they're not too heavy and they don't produce too many male chicks. So just remind me about what was happening there. It was found that the more that the females were fed or the heavier the females were, the more likely they were to have male chicks. And it seems to be a manifestation of, of what's known as sex allocation theory, whereby if a female has too many reserves or is in too good a condition, then she's more likely to produce males and for a species like Kakapo, a leopard breeding species. 
And of course you want 50-50, or preferably maybe a few more girls. Actually, we don't really know what the optimal ratio is. We kind of guess that 50-50 is about right. Um, we certainly don't want too many males. On the other hand, you do need a decent number of males to be able to produce competition at the LEX, to be able to encourage the females to go visit in the first place. So, yeah, it's a bit of a guessing game, but that's what we're aiming for is around about 50-50. Now, let's have a chat about the, the hatch dates because we've commented in previous episodes about what a drawn-out breeding season this is, and it really is, isn't it? Yeah, it's been going on for a long time, it seems. So, you know, we had our first matings before Christmas. The first chick hatched on the 30th of January, which was the earliest a chick had ever hatched by by more than two weeks. The next earliest was, um, I think, the 17th of February in 2016. So yeah, it's been an early season, but it's also been a late season because here we are in mid-April and we still have some chicks to hatch. And that's come about as a result of the double clutchings that we've done. That's the reason why we've had such late hatchings. Otherwise, it would have been quite an early season. The chicks are getting quite big, most of them. Obviously, there are still some chicks hatching, so it's, this isn't across the board. But in the nests where the chicks are getting quite big now what's going on what's the daily or rather nightly routine the mother's away from the nest for for most of the time especially when there's two or three chicks in the nest there's actually not a lot of room for the mother plus she has to do a lot of work trying to feed those those big chicks so she'll often be away for nearly all of the time come back for about 10 minutes or so and then head away again and often at this stage as well they'll sometimes be roosting outside of the nest too so she won't necessarily be spending the day with them either Thanks, Andrew. That was Kākāpō scientist Andrew Digby from the Department of Conservation's Kākāpō recovery team. You can catch the full episode of the Kākāpō Files, the long Kākāpō breeding season, at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You'll also find all the episodes of the Elemental podcast there too. We're up to calcium on our alphabetical tour of the periodic table. If you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science, and our email address is ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Thanks for your company. Until next week, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai topo.